Welcome to the 15 Past 15 podcast. For today's interview, we're delighted to be joined by a familiar voice on the podcast, uh, Dr. Birgit Trammel-Werner from the University of Zurich. Birgit, thanks for being with us again. Thank you. And as a guest host, we're joined by Professor Joachim Kurz from Heidelberg University. Joachim, thanks for being with us, and I'll hand over to you now. Thank you, Martin. Birgit, in one of your recent essays, I was struck by your introduction of the Columbus of Japan. I had never heard of that man, so maybe you can tell us a little bit about who he was. So the Columbus of Japan, that is actually a term that was coined in the 1940s in a biography about a certain Yamada Nagamasa. And Yamada Nagamasa was a maritime merchant in the early 17th century who traveled all over Southeast Asia. The reason we know about Yamada Nagamasa is that he carried a shuinjo, a so-called Red Seal trading permit issued by the Tokugawa shogunate. And the Tokugawa shogunate ruled over Japan from 1600 until 1868. So why is he referred to as Columbus of Japan? I think there are various reasons for that. One is his access to ruling courts at that time. He worked for the Siamese king in Ayutthaya for several years, and he was also considered to be the head of the Japanese settlement in Ayutthaya. There was a lot of Japanese merchants who basically migrated to Southeast Asia in this period. And through his work for the Siamese court, he was likely to gather information that he brought back to Japan. And this bringing back to Japan happened in his function as part of a diplomatic delegation to Japan in the 1620s. So he's more a diplomat than a discoverer, really. Well, he's neither. He's definitely not a discoverer, but he is a pioneer in what he does. Uh, in the sense as Columbus is considered a pioneer in discovering... Um, the Caribbean and bringing back information about the Caribbean and showing the Spanish court, the court of Isabel I of Castilla, future op options in a new territory, in a new land. And that, in that respect, there are many parallels could be drawn between Yamada Nagamasa and Columbus. Mm -hmm. So he was kind of a diplomatic version of a Columbus. And that leads me to my second question. I, I know that your larger work is about the history of diplomacy in and around Japan. So perhaps you could tell us a little bit how this diplomacy was organized and in which ways it differed from European practices in the same period? So official relations between Ming and Japan uh, ended in the 1540s and that is why all official trade relations which usually worked through the system of tributary relations came to a halt and this gap was filled by so-called illicit traders. Illicit traders were referred to as such by the official Ming court and they're also known as Wako or pirates. And they included all kinds of Chinese, Ryukyuanese, Japanese, and Southeast Asian merchants in the maritime region. So Yamada sounds to me like a man who helped to free Japan from Ming China's dominance in the diplomatic sphere. Well, one could definitely say so, because the early Tokugawa period is also a period where Japan is experimenting with new diplomatic practices. In the case of Yamada, these very training permits that I mentioned earlier, these Shuinchu, also had a diplomatic character. And in order to be invited to participate in this trade with Tokugawa Japan, which in a way, this very practice actually has many similarities with the Ming way of carrying out its foreign relations, because you need to be invited by the central government. Not anyone can participate it, uh, freely. And as such, 
one could say, as, a, as the holder of such a permit, Yamada Nagamasa also had a diplomatic function. Mm -hmm. So they didn't change the practice so much as um, the relations between the different powers in East Asia. So if Japan turned away from Ming China, who did they turn to? Right. I mean, Japan turned away from Ming China in one sense, but at the same time, they also tried to reorganize their relations with Ming China. And this is very important to consider when we talk about who did they turn to otherwise. Of course, they also turned to many other Southeast Asian rulers. So they started having relations, for instance, with DC Amit course, with Ayutthaya, with Cambodia, with the European colonial rulers in Manila, later in Batavia, in Macau. But one of the reasons why they were so interested in maintaining, or actually first in initiating and later in maintaining relations with these new rulers was the presence of Chinese merchants in all these ports and in all these uh, small entities. Now, you just mentioned European traders and others in Manila. So what was the role of Europe in East Asian diplomacy or Asian diplomacy more generally at that time? Well, as I said, I guess the reason to, to start looking at Europe or European presence in Southeast Asians and uh, its effect on Japan is this early modern maritime expansion that was always uh, triggered by interest in trade, in expanding trade. And the Europeans uh, arrived in uh, the South China Seas, the Portuguese in 1511, and from there they started to have their first relations with the Japanese. It's actually the first Japanese the European had, had contact with were these illicit traders, these pirate groups. So in the 1540s and 1550s then, this maritime Merchants brought back the first Europeans to Japan, and this is also when then gradually official relations between European traders and uh, Japanese officials, in the first case it was daimyo, local lords, uh, started off. So that's interesting in terms of a narrative that is often told in Japanese history, which is of Europeans discovering Japan or opening Japan to the outside world. Actually, what you're saying is the very first contact between Europe and Japan was thanks to Japanese traders in Southeast Asia bringing Europeans to Japan and not some Portuguese ship just rolling up on the horizon one day. Yeah, that's correct. I mean, the, the encounter, so to say, between early modern Japan and early modern Europe happened on the seascape happened in port cities all over Southeast Asia. How disruptive was the entry of the Europeans into that arena? Because our usual image is that European colonialism or European expansion immediately breaks the rules that were existing. But your story sounds as if the Europeans were subjecting themselves to the rules of the game in East Asia. One of the, the problems with this narrative of disruptive colonialism in Southeast Asia in general, but especially in Southeast Asia and in East Asia, is that we look at it through our understanding of the colonialism of later centuries. So we apply our ideas on imperialism on this early period. But in order to survive in, in Southeast Asia and in these new territories, in territories where you had functioning systems of power, both in Southeast Asia and in Japan and in China, the Europeans had to adapt and they also, first they had to adapt to, well, it's very hard to call this Japanese or Chinese practice, but to the practice of the region, to the established order there. And second, 
they always depended on intermediaries. Yamada Nagamasa was definitely one of these intermediaries, someone who also had a personal interest in maintaining good relations with these new, newly arrived um, European, European traders, and someone who also had an interest in maintaining this new system of expanding trade relations between Japan and Southeast Asia. So Yamada really was a, a diplomat, a cultural go-between, an illicit trader, or a pirate, or all of these things together. And that then made him into the Columbus of Japan. You said initially that he became the Columbus of Japan in the 1940s. So how was he discovered as being Japan's Columbus? You're right. He was all these four or even more things together. And in the official narrative of diplomatic relations, he played no role until the, until the late 19th or early 20th century. Because they only looked at official relations based on official documents. But with changes in the late 19th and early 20th century is a new narrative about early modern Japanese expansion into Southeast Asia, which then in a way is also an attempt to synchronize Japanese history and the Japanese past with the European past, similar to what I just said previously about the arrival of the Europeans in Southeast Asia and in East Asia. Japan is no longer the recipient of ideas from Europe, but they also participated actively in this new age of trade, so to say. And that happens in a very complex process, but one of the ways um, Yamada Nagamasa suddenly appears in the sources is to look at European sources in this broader narrative of encounter. And in order to look at European sources, uh, Japanese historians needed to have access to European sources, but they also needed to have the language skills. And this is uh, one of the reasons why we learn so much about these people, because they were in contact with Europeans, and that's why the Europeans wrote about them. In my work, I look at one of the historians who did a lot of work on editing, but also translating and disseminating these uh, European sources, and he's called... Murakami Naojiro, and he was a historian who was active between the 1890s and 1960s. And he actually was also the one calling Yamada Nagamasa Columbus. Why did Japan need a Columbus in Murakami's eyes? Well, Japan needed a Columbus in Murakami's eyes because there was a strong trend to show that Japan was not the little brother of China and constantly only received influence uh, from China in its past. So did Murakami then also try to present someone as a precursor of a Japanese colonialism? Because we understand Columbus nowadays as someone who participated in, was complicit in the European expansion. Did Japan need someone like that? And if so, why? Yeah, absolutely. That was part of the idea. Both Yamada Nagamasa and the many unnamed Wako received a lot of attention in the first uh, half of the 20th century in Japanese scholarship. And in writing about this early modern presence of Japanese traders who frequented ports in Southeast Asia, and very often these ports and these territories then played a role for Japanese colonialism uh, in the 1940s, they somehow justify Japanese presence in that period, in the later period. So that makes it sound as if there's a very direct relationship between uh, Murakami writing about Yamada in specific ports in Southeast Asia and then those ports being important in Japanese colonialism. Is there a, a bigger picture here or is it about very precise instrumental ways of using the past? 
No, there is definitely a bigger picture. There's this whole idea of integrating Japan into um, a world history, so to say, finding Japanese place against China, but also in relation with uh, the other areas. And what happens, for instance, so in Japan, you have this phenomenon of three different disciplines of history. You have Japanese history, you have Eastern or Oriental history, and Western history. And in this period, in the late 1920s, they start to have a history of the South Seas that shows the connections between Japan and the outside world. And Murakami actually, this is very interesting in terms of uh, the colonial or imperial dimension in it, he is the first professor of South Sea history at the Imperial, imperial University in Taipei. In Taiwan. In Taiwan, exactly. And in doing so, he he not only changes the way history should be seen and understood and Japanese participation in it, but he also creates a certain methodology. And this methodology is based on European sources, but also on a European way of reading historical sources. What is that exactly? Uh, well, Rankian diplomatics. You mean with a particular focus on state actors when you say Rankian ways of thinking about diplomatic history? Well, yes, with a particular focus on state actors, but also with the idea that sources, historical records can show us how things were actually. But um, not to make this a too European story, what he also did, he looked for indigenous sources and he actually also discovered or he integrated the very few indigenous sources you have on Taiwanese history into this into this uh, way of studying Taiwanese history. Interestingly enough, though, he ignores all the Chinese literature and material on Taiwan. And this presumably also reflects the political situation of the late 1930s, early 1940s. So it sounds to me as if Murakami is the type of professor who is very much in a kind of collaboration with the Japanese colonial state. Does that mean that he's now ignored as being beyond the pale uh, in terms of his scholarship? No, I mean, he's definitely collaborating with the Japanese government. I mean, there are many examples where he actually acted as representative of the Japanese state for, at conferences. He also translated official diplomatic sources from Spanish uh, for the Japanese uh, foreign ministry. But his scholarship is by no means considered as tainted these days. But that, I think, is has a lot to do with the fact that he did not produce many books and certain monographs with a very strong message, but he's mostly known for his uh, translation and editing works. And these, strangely enough, are considered neutral scholarship. But it seems that one part of his legacy is the Columbus of Japan. And so to conclude, my, one of my questions would be, um, how is the Columbus of Japan seen today? Because in North America and in Europe, we're very ambivalent, to put it mildly, about Columbus's legacy. What about the Columbus of Japan? This is a very complicated question because it goes into the field of the divergence between public history and academic history. And I guess what you refer to is the public discourse. And in the public discourse, Yamada Nagamasa is as popular as he has already been in the 1940s. There's uh, many TV dramas. There's manga on Yamada Nagamasa. He's part of a history textbook, so everyone knows Yamada Nagamasa. In academia, people are much more critical about his actual accomplishment. However, 
there is a trend to understand Japanese uh, engagement with the outside world in this period. And for the very fact that we have sources on Yamada Nagamasa, he still plays an important role in this narrative. Birgit Schammelwerner, many thanks for being with us today. Thank you for having me.